Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Today, when a person calls a church a group of Pharisees, we know that this is meant to be derogatory. It doesn't mean that the church is full of zealous, holy, dedicated, earnest students of the Bible who really know their stuff. No, it's a slam. Uh, We have come to associate Pharisees with stubborn, hard-hearted, religious hypocrites. But in the first century, specifically during the time when Jesus ministered, uh, this would hardly have been the default reaction. The Pharisees were seen as devout experts of the law. They were conservative, ethically and theologically. The parable of the Pharisee, the tax collector, for example, is meant to be shocking. The stock character holy man is the one who leaves condemned? The reader's world is supposed to be flipped upside down by this. But for us today, the oomph behind texts like these uh, is, is lost because of how we have come to see this group primarily because they are cast as the antagonists in the Gospels. Now, to be sure, Luke and John, and even Mark, nuance their portrayals by having some good ones. But this really is absent in Matthew. He goes out of his way to consistently characterize the Pharisees as villains. Whereas Mark's account of the material we just considered uh, says, in our last uh, episode, says a scribe asks Jesus about the greatest commandment, and then says Jesus commends him for his answer and says he's not far from the kingdom of God. In Matthew's version, we see him as one of the Pharisees and all the positive material is left out. Matthew goes out of his way to describe this group in negative terms. The most dramatic example of this is in our text for today, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Now, I say all of this because Matthew's highly influential account has been used to create a caricature of this group, and even worse, a caricature of what all Jewish people were like at that time. How many times have you heard people express this idea that uh, when Jesus arrived on the scene, Jewish people weren't concerned about matters of the heart? Matthew has not given us any reason to agree with this description. Nor should we envision Matthew as affirming this description of the Pharisees. Uh, Remember that these people were around. If Matthew was written after 70, which I think is unlikely, but if it it were, uh, they were in even more power. Matthew is not here describing historical figures for those who don't know them. I like the way Nolan puts it in his commentary. He writes, quote, Perhaps the real problem is that what was originally formulated as addressed to a group of people has come to be taken as providing a description of a group of people. A passionate prophetic consciousness will catch attention and challenge in ways that involve the exaggeration of hyperbole and the imaginative presentation of what are only partial perspectives." David Turner, in his monograph, Israel's Last Prophet, develops at length how Matthew portrays Jesus as a rejected prophet much like the Old Testament prophets. This is important because uh, this chapter, Matthew 23, has a long, sad history of anti-Semitism, particularly verse 23 about blood coming upon them. But this strong language must be understood in the context of a challenging rebuke 
coming out of patriotic zeal. Ezekiel, for example, says some pretty extreme and frankly gross things about Israel. But that doesn't mean he's anti-Semitic. He's trying to shake the people up. He's trying to shake the people out of their sleep. So with that introduction in mind, keep your eye out for how Jesus tries to wake up his people as I read starting in verse 1. We'll go through verse 12. Uh, getting the full force of his rebuke will require, of course, reading the whole discourse, which goes through verse 39. But for the sake of time, we will focus on verses 1 to 12 in this episode and 13 to 39 in the next. And that's where he changes to the second person and addresses the Pharisees with seven woes. But starting in verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flactories broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." This portion, as I said earlier, is the first major section of Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees. Verses 13 to 39 specifically addresses them. Uh, presumably, they are still in view from earlier and uh, issues the seven woes to them. This section, verses 1 through 12, is addressed to the crowds and speaks about the Pharisees. It can be broken up into two sections as well. After the introduction of verse 1, verses 2 to 7 describe the failings of the Pharisees, and verses 8 through 12 prescribe how the disciples are to act in contrast. This first bit about the failings of the Pharisees surprisingly starts with a positive statement. It even says the crowds and the disciples should obey them. Now this has received at least 10 significant different interpretations. But for our purposes, we're just going to look at a major issue. Are they sarcastic? Certainly, there's a lot of negativity in the rest of the chapter, so that might suggest Jesus is being coy here. However, the rest of the chapter isn't entirely so. Verse 23, for example, talks about them tithing mint and cumin and says these things should be done, but without neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Jesus isn't so negative that he sees nothing good coming out of the Pharisees. There are things, according to Jesus, that the Pharisees say which are right. The problem at this point, anyway, is, is not what they say, but in what they do. And, in fact, that is why they are all the more culpable. This fits well with the historical context. Recall that the majority, maybe somewhere around 80% of people, are illiterate. And even if one was literate, that doesn't mean one had enough extra finances to go out and buy a personal copy of the scriptures. 
Mark Allen puts it well, quote, Jesus may simply be acknowledging the powerful social and religious position that the scribes and Pharisees occupy in a world where most people are illiterate and copies of the Torah are not plentiful. Since Jesus' disciples do not themselves have copies of the Torah, they will be dependent on the scribes and the Pharisees to know what Moses said. In light of such dependence, Jesus advises his disciples to heed the words that the scribes and Pharisees speak when they sit in Moses' seat, that is, when they pass on the words of the Torah itself." The Pharisees are important then, as custodians of Scripture. But the problem is that they are bad examples. Verse 4 then moves on to something else they do. They also tie heavy burdens on people's shoulders. There are a couple uh, ironic elements here. First, we should contrast this with Matthew 11:28 to 30, where Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is then contrasted with the heavy yoke of the Pharisees in the very next account, when they are upset about the disciples rubbing pieces of grain together to eat on the Sabbath. That is, their halakha, their their interpretation and implementation of Torah and practical matters made life burdensome and difficult for the people. Not moving a finger to help probably doesn't mean that they were unconcerned with uh, keeping this fence around Torah, but rather that they were exacting and unyielding in their implementation, even to the hurt of others. Unlike Jesus, They were calloused and had no compassion for other people. The second point of irony is to contrast this with verse 23, uh, where the same Greek word occurs. Again, they tithe mint and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. From this perspective, it's like they make the big things the small things and the small things the big things. They make matters which Jesus says are light, as in comparatively less significant, heavy, that is, burdensome and oppressive. So Jesus begins by saying that they do not do what they should, that is, their own teaching. Then he accuses them of laying heavy burdens. The third accusation is that they love the praise of human beings. Their flactories are broad. This refers to leather boxes worn on the left hand and the forehead, uh, which had scripture inside of them. The verses inside were from the law and had admonitions about the importance of remembering to do the law. Jesus is laying it on pretty thick here. They love to talk about and show off their obedience, but it's all for show. This last element allows Jesus to transition to how his followers should act in distinction. They are not to be called rabbi or father, since those names are reserved for the Messiah and God. The title rabbi may have been relatively new at this time. It literally means my great one, and first and second century documents do make some reference to teachers being referred to as father. In contrast, Jesus' disciples are not to seek these honorary titles, to be seen and praised by people. Of course, it doesn't mean that we can't call our literal dads father, and the Bible is explicit about the positions of teachers existing within the church. We can safely assume that there is nothing wrong when Paul, for example, refers to Abraham as father, or even describes his relationship to Timothy as his son in the faith, or when Elisha sees Elijah go up in a whirlwind and says, my father, my father. Nor does this rule out what the book of Hebrews says, honor them that have the rule over you. 
Instead, the point is not to seek human praise. And this is often done by uh, demanding honorary titles. I don't think we should press this so far as to make an absolute rule that we can't refer to someone else as a teacher. Uh, currently, I'm a professor at Emmaus Bible College, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being called Professor Henning or Dr. Henning. It's an appropriate sign of respect, although I don't demand it. We have to keep the context of Jesus' saying in mind as a polemic against the Pharisees who were looking to maximize their praise. Jesus says his people must not follow their example. Now, there is an application for us. Don't get me wrong. If anyone, particularly leaders, require titles to their names, this very well may indicate a lack of appropriate humility. The temptation of pride is just as alluring now as it was then. The Pharisees, in, in tragic irony, set themselves up in the position reserved for God the Father. When we earlier read about the seat of Moses, um, that's a, that's a difficult expression to understand. We aren't really sure what this is. It may have been a place where the Torah was placed. Some have suggested that it represented a divine throne. And of course, the figure who sits on it is invisible. In this case, the accusation that they sit themselves in Moses' seat is presumptuous, to say the least. But not only do they take the name and place reserved for God alone, but they also take the title reserved for the Messiah. And in an ironic tragedy from that position, are about to condemn the one who actually is the Messiah. They take the place of the Messiah to condemn the Messiah. Uh, they take the place of God uh, to, do, uh, to reject God's anointed one. Taking the place that rightfully belongs to the Lord Jesus, taking the place that rightfully belongs to God is the temptation of old that Satan said to our parents in the garden, that you will be like God. This is a temptation that must be fiercely opposed by every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu.